and I would have paid over $16,000 in interest alone. So almost 50% of what I had taken out on that loan. And the idea of that just drove me crazy, right? I was like, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't understand what I signed up for. I have to pay that down. And so... Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Kimberly Hamilton, author of Building Wealth on a Dime. But before we get into her story and what she has to share, let me check out my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Over the last week, my boss came into town, and I actually went into an office, which I've only done a couple times in the last three years. I think it might have been like the fifth day I've been in an office in the last three years, but it was kind of cool getting out of the house, getting to be around some other folks, getting to have some good dinners. So that was fun. And then this weekend, we had this big music festival. It was actually the first time they've had it north of Austin in a town called Georgetown. It was called Two Step In. And it had like some throwback 90s country. It had some like newer people like Tyler Childers and Zach Bryan. But then it also had a sprinkle of like t-pain and diplo so it was an interesting lineup but uh that was a fun time and we probably walked 15 miles you know we're just walking so much so it's a actually a surprisingly good workout on top of being a good time how about you cody yeah i had a pretty good weekend too we actually got like really surprisingly good weather in massachusetts for mid-april we were in the 80s on friday and saturday and actually before that so on thursday we didn't have the mid-80s weather but i went to see lil wayne in concert at small venue, Justin, you're familiar, House of Blues in Boston. And it was awesome. Like someone that big uh, in that kind of intimate of a setting. Yes, there's thousands of people. But you know, I've been to concerts at like Gillette and Fenway and other huge stadiums where you're just like miles away from the performer. And I was like 100 feet away from Lil Wayne, who was you know one of my favorite rappers, one of my favorite artists growing up. So that was super cool on Thursday. And like I mentioned, we got blessed with awesome weather on Friday and Saturday. We have friends who have like this huge yard with like a volleyball court. And so they kind of hosted this outside gathering with a fire. We got like the whole town there. It was pretty awesome. And it was still warm at night, which is just crazy for mid-April Massachusetts. And then finally wrapped it up with, I got hit with a huge tax bill. I thought I was doing good paying my estimated quarterly tax payments all year, which as fellow entrepreneurs know, it kind of sucks. You kind of, you know, you have your taxes coming out and you have to actually manually go on the website and pay them. It doesn't just automatically come out of the paycheck, but I underpaid, which I guess is a good and a bad problem. It means I made more money than I was anticipating, but it still sucks because I'm shelling out like 50 grand to the IRS. But Justin, that's enough about us and what we have going on. Let's talk about our guest for today, Kimberly Hamilton. So I actually met Kim back in FinCon 2019. They had this big like opening party at the Smithsonian, which was really cool. Awesome venue. It was like a rooftop and free drinks and free food. It was awesome. But we connected there. I think we had just met online briefly, meaning like a comment back and forth on Twitter or Instagram or something. But we ended up chatting there for a while. We became good friends. And we so we finally had her on the show today because she actually just recently finished a book. And this is something that she's doing alongside a full-time W-2 job in finance, like making six figures. And so in this episode, we kind of do a bit of both. We kind of piece her story together. So how she kind of ended up where she's at today in a six-figure finance job with a personal brand, with a new book on the way. Like she's doing a lot outside of the corporate job, which is always super inspiring to see people 
side hustling and building businesses, but we also focus a lot on like the core principles, the core tenets of that book. Because as many of you know, writing a book is a huge endeavor and she's able to like really flesh out all of her ideas. She has these awesome concepts. One that I really like that we talk about is the millionaire money habits that she mentions and so much more. And breaking down the book a little bit more, Cody, I thought one of the unique things she did is picked a few different personas, like even gave them names and locations, for instance, Claire in New York or Tanya in Chicago. And I think that just makes things a lot more realistic to see these different type of personas explained. It also means that you're a lot more likely to read it and have something resonate with you. This also feels like one of those books is going to be a really foundational piece for people who are you know, getting started on their journey and learning all the basics. And I know sometimes, you know, on the show, we go into some kind of really niche, like more advanced topics, but sometimes it's really good to kind of remember the fundamentals and also remember there's a lot of people in our lives who could use this kind of information. So whether you're interested in sharing this episode with someone or finding a link to her book, Building Wealth on a Dime, you could do all that over at thefyshow.com slash Kimberly. That's thefyshow.com slash K-I-M. B-E-R-L-Y. Take it away, Kimberly. My parents would have had to be my mentor. I don't explicitly remember what my first memory about money was, but I definitely always viewed it, I think, as a positive thing, maybe an exciting thing, which I'm fortunate to have. I know that's not everyone's experience. I grew up in a middle-class background, and so a lot of the lessons I learned about money were related to probably my dad's entrepreneurial efforts, my mom's side. They always hustled as well. I might come from a Latina background. And so everyone's always worked. But my dad was the first one, I think, to have a small business of his own. And so a lot of the lessons I got were things surrounding trading your time for money in sort of a one-to-one way, right? Be the hardest person in the room, be the first one there and the last one out. And I think those lessons have paid off in some aspects, right? Like hard work is always valued. You all run your podcast. I have my own entrepreneurial efforts and none of that comes overnight. So I think some of those traits, I still credit to him in a positive way, but it's very different than how I think about money now and your ability to make it grow and sort of work for you isn't always a one-to-one trade-off there. So it's definitely changed over time. And so you saw that entrepreneurial kind of role model in the house through your dad and now you're doing some of those entrepreneurial things but as you say like let's think about like coming out of high school maybe you know going to college that sort of time frame did you think that that's the route you would go and that you would be an entrepreneur or how did you kind of see your life playing out absolutely not i did not see that for myself you know i look at my brother's always had that bug since he was like 12 fixing and flipping dirt bikes and things like that and i just always thought I would go to school. I was in school for quite a long time. I got a master's degree after my bachelor's in international relations and thought I would always sort of have the standard nine to five. Even though I had sort of those values instilled in me, I didn't really have an education about other ways to make my money work for me. So I wasn't really thinking about all these other ways I could generate income, especially passive income at that time. It wasn't something I grew up really learning about. So I just thought I was going to go to school, take out the student loans that I had to you know, get to the next level and sort of just go into the nine to five world. I still work in the nine to five world today. I think my entrepreneurial journey came out of a passion to really teach others about personal finance and about money after I overcame some of my own challenges related to student debt. And 
I find that a lot of other entrepreneurs I know are also driven by passion in that way, especially in this community. I think that's not always the case. But when I talk to, you know, other personal finance experts and educators, a lot of them came into that field because they overcame a challenge themselves. And I'm lucky I actually still have a nine to five in addition to the work that I do with BeWorth, um, separate from the book. And I'm just fortunate enough that I get to do things that I love in both of those places. I don't sort of knock the nine to five. I don't want to do it forever either. So I am planning on retiring a bit early and have investing goals to work towards that. But it's never something that I envisioned for myself that I would run a company or write a book or really do any of those other things other than what I went to school for. I think it's sort of funny how your trajectory can change over time. So I think a lot of time nine to fives do get demonized just in like the online personal finance world. They're like, you know, screw the nine to five, quit your job. And something interesting about you and Justin, like you've kind of carved a really nice niche and you are actually enjoying your nine to five. It's something that you you wake up, you're excited to go to it. It pays well. I'm curious, Kim, how did that happen for you? Like what was your trajectory to finding a nine to five job that you loved? Because, you know, in the financial independence community, it's everyone running away from a nine to five. It's not like finding the right one for you. So I'm just curious how that happened. Absolutely. And I think there's probably seasons of change in the nine to five that you have as well, right? I've been working a nine to five for 11, 12 years now. And I think for me, initially, I was fortunate enough to land in the field that I went to school for. So things sort of went to plan there. I did work in international development for about a decade and and started Be Worth Finance in the middle of that journey. It's only been in the past few years that I've pivoted to personal finance full time after building my company. Now I'm a senior manager of financial education at a personal finance app called Rocket Money. And in both of those places, the nine to five I had before in the international development world and the job that I hold now, I think for me, what changes it from the normal sort of mantra of running away from your nine to five is that the job really works in my favor, right? I'm passionate about what I do. I have the flexibility that's important to me. Benefits are huge. And I think a lot of times it's easy to think, oh, I'll stop and, you know, I'll quit my nine to five and I'll start my own thing, but not thinking about some of those benefits related to healthcare, for example, or disability insurance or all these other things that entrepreneurs have to think about eventually. There are some big financial benefits there as well. So for me, as long as I'm passionate and I get to enjoy what I do, it works. But I understand that that's probably a privileged position. A lot of people have a lot of jobs that they don't really get the choice to decide whether they enjoy or not. And so weighing those pros and cons between maybe creating your own sources of passive income becomes a different conversation. And so Kim, I know one thing with me and like the W-2 job and this financial kind of background and having this stable financial foothold, it's allowed me, I feel like, to be a better W-2 employee. Like I don't find myself doing busy work just so I can get noticed. Like I'm not playing the corporate ladder game. Like I do things because I feel like it's the way I want to do it and the way like that I want to take care of the people who work for me. And I'm not so much worried about all the politics and stuff because at the end of the day, like if they want to fire me, they can fire me. And I've always been like open and honest about like where I'm at financially. And so I'm kind of curious, like how you've been able to, you know, bring that into your corporate world. If people knew that you were like on this financial journey, or if you kind of kept that to the side, or if you found that it was like a little bit of a hidden superpower to have your finances in such good order. (laughs) Right. I remember when I started Be With Finance, back in 2019. And that was with, I was at that job for, 
nine years and I was really hesitant to sort of spread the word initially because I didn't want people to think that I was just going to bounce. That's never been the goal of mine to have that and leave a nine to five per se, but regardless of what I tell people, it could have been perceived differently. And so that was a hesitation at that time, but I made the decision that I was just going to be completely transparent about it. I tried not to talk about it in my nine to five a lot, and that's still the case today, even though everyone knows that, you know, I not only be worth, but I also spent time writing and now promoting my book. And I think that's sort of a known entity. As for the retiring early piece, that's not something that I tout often. I I don't tend to talk about that. But I think in all cases, in my nine to five and the work I do outside of it, I've always been driven by impact. And so I sort of lead with that, like what's inspiring me to show up at my nine to five, what's inspiring me to create my courses and run workshops with BeWorth and all of that, the common denominator there is really driving impact, whether that was in international development or whether that's in the personal finance community with Rocket Money, the ability to teach millions of people through the app about different financial concepts was a huge, that's really exciting to me. So to your point, it's not about, for me, sort of climbing that corporate ladder, but really doing things that are able to have an impact in people's everyday life. And so as you have started to climb the corporate ladder, I'm sure you're making a lot more money than you were 12 years ago when you first started in your 95. And now you have, you know, a side hustle and a book and like all this other stuff going on. Have you always been a natural saver? Like did you ever experience lifestyle creep? If not, how have you been able to kind of keep your spending in check? Is it just like an innate ability of yours? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm certainly making more money now because I was broke when I first (laughs) finished grad school. And I talk a lot about that a lot in my book too, right? I think that trajectory and what you decide to do with it when you are making not just a livable income, but, you know, an income that you really have the opportunity to pursue other passions or spend more if that's what you want to do. You have to sort of make those decisions. And I've generally been pretty damn good, I think, at maintaining lifestyle creep. I wouldn't say that I was a natural saver per se. I think I was taught to save growing up. I think In my early 20s, I didn't have a choice. Like I wasn't making a ton of money that I had all this extra income to sort of throw around. And so I think sort of those formative years when you're not being supported by family, when you're really supporting yourself, it just became more of a habit than anything. I think now I'm starting to rework some of that. I'm at a point where I have enough income where if I'm focusing so much on investing and creating these passive streams, I want to be able to enjoy some of that. And I have always been good. I will say I've always prioritized travel. So that's like a category that I've always been able to spend on completely guilt-free. But there are other things that I've really hesitated with over the years. And it's interesting. I was talking with my partner about it the other day. He thinks about money very differently than I do, right? He spends more for convenience, which is something that I'm trying to adopt more. And so I think it is interesting, even though you could be making more money, some of those mental shifts and how you handle your money can be more difficult sometimes. But yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a natural spender or saver. I probably lean more towards the saving side of that. But I think a lot of that came after having to overcome some hurdles there. So even if maybe you weren't like the utmost like saver in the beginning, it feels like you found a good groove. But like there's a kind of a difference between just saving money and then turning that corner to the point where 
you're investing and you're doing all the next level things. So at what point in the story does it go from just, okay, like I've gotten through school, I'm trying to save money to where you actually started like building something. And then like, I'm also curious, like at what point that changes to I'm building something and I'm realizing people around me don't know how to build this and I need to help them build this. Right. I think both of those things happened in a really condensed short time frame for me. And it was probably very shortly after I bought my condo in DC, which is now a rental property. But before that, you know, I lived with, I had three roommates for five years. I was saving everything. I paid down, you know, I arrived in DC making more debt than I had in a salary, in my starting salary at about $45,000 worth of student loans, which isn't terrible relative to the amount of student debt in America, but it was terrible for me, right? It felt enormous on a 40K starting salary was hard. And I was able to pay that down in three years, but I continued to live with those roommates because I knew I wanted a place of my own. And after I think I bought my condo, that was sort of the first really big, like, I did it kind of moment by myself. And I think after that, it was sort of like, well, what's next? And also, DC is such an expensive housing market. When I paid down my debt, nobody cared. But when I bought my first condo in DC before my 30th birthday, not only did I start to notice like people around me, friends I have in a book club talking about things like salary negotiation and how they were saving up for homes and not being familiar with those concepts were also coming to me saying, how did you pull this off? And I didn't do anything really magical. So it was those types of conversations that encouraged me or really made me realize that there's a gap for relatable personal finance information, especially I think when it comes to talking with women and minorities, obviously not exclusive to those groups, but there's a huge gap there. And I just thought, well, if I can start at least just teaching the people around me, my family and friends, that'll be enough. But you know, once I discovered the world of online courses, I thought I could reach a lot more people. And again, being driven by impact, I thought that would be just a really cool way to do that. And the company sort of snowballed from there. So one of the things you talk about in your book that in our conversation before, I was pretty candid. I'm like, I don't know what to tell people sometimes when they ask me about student loans or debt. Like Justin and I both fortunately didn't really have that as part of our journey. We didn't have like this huge debt we had to overcome, whether it was student loans or some other kind of commercial debt. So I was hoping you could maybe break down some of those like debt pay down accelerator strategies that you lay out in the book, because I think it's really helpful. And I think there are a lot of people who struggle with that. And they just feel like I'm not even at zero right now. What's the point of even starting? Because I just have this like mountain of debt in front of me. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. 
Right. Absolutely. And I think it's also interesting how people can view debt differently, right? People feel a lot different about credit cards and student loans than they might a mortgage. But when it comes to if you have a debt that you're really focused on paying down quickly, there are two sort of broad stroke strategies that you can use. And both involve, I should say, making additional payments, making extra payments on top of whatever your minimum payments are. So your payments are going to be made of a portion of principal, which is what you originally borrowed, and then a portion of interest, which is essentially the money you're paying back a lender for letting you borrow that money in the first place. In order to pay that debt down quicker, you need to pay off the interest first. So by making extra payments and applying it to either the highest interest debt, which would be using what's called the avalanche method, or the lowest balance debt, which would be what's called the snowball method, you're able to crack down at that principle a lot more quickly. And just to put that into some numbers, using myself as an example, the debt that I had, I had taken out $40,000 worth of debt out on interest over the course of grad school. I came out with close to $45,000. And I realized that if I had just made the minimum payment, that would take me, first of all, 10 years to pay off. And I would have paid over $16,000 in interest alone. So almost 50% of what I had taken out on that loan. And the idea of that just drove me crazy, right? I was like, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't understand what I signed up for. I have to pay that down. And so through a mix of salary negotiation and working sort of odd jobs at the time, I started throwing everything I had at that and was able to pay it down in three years by a mix of making those extra payments and also automating a lot of my financial goals, which I talk about in the book. I think something I didn't realize until years later after I bought my condo is that it wasn't just paying down that debt quickly that really accelerated my journey, but it's the money I saved in interest. I wouldn't have been able to buy my condo if I was still making all those interest payments. You know, once I bought my condo while I was still living there, I rented it out quite often. You know, I did things like Airbnb and what have you to generate extra income where I could, and all of that's contributed slowly but surely to my financial sort of wealth building journey to where I am today. But I think initially, some people grow up in a place where debt is normalized in their family or sort of acceptable. That was not the case for me, even though my family wasn't really and still really isn't as strategic about money as sometimes I would love for them to be. We were fortunate enough that my immediate family did not struggle with debt, at least that I know of. So that wasn't something that I grew up learning, but the quicker you can pay that down, it can really be a game changer in terms of the cash flow that you're able to then start investing more heavily. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like most families are either one extreme or the other, like they're totally comfortable taking on debt or they're a, if you don't have the cash, then you shouldn't buy it at all. And it seems like there's definitely a, like a happy middle ground. You know, if somebody offers you a 0% interest loan, or if it's kind of like a delayed thing where you don't have to pay payments for six months, but then there's no yeah. early termination fees, no fees for basically paying the loan off right away once the time comes. Then sometimes, you know, taking on debt can be a great thing to have that money be built in the background. And I think things like that come natural to me. Like I'm very aware, like here's the things I need to consider. Like we're, we're looking at buying solar right now and there's a million different kind of like weird loan structures out there. And, and I know the questions to ask, but most people don't. And I'm curious, like in the book, if you're thinking about the book as being sort of like a guidebook or like a checklisty kind of thing in certain situations where people can know and be reminded of the type of questions to ask in certain situations or um, just a little bit more about like how the book is structured and, and kind of the uses that you think people would want to pull the book out for. 
Yeah, so it's a bit of a mix and match. And I'd love to come back to in a second what you said, Justin, about how debt can be a good thing as well. I'm definitely not one of those people, even though my student debt drove me crazy. I'm definitely not one of those people that are anti-credit cards or anti-debt because I actually think credit can be a fantastic tool. And it's interesting when you talk to people that are a bit more financially savvy, they understand how to use those tools to their benefit. But for a big portion of America, they're just struggling because they feel sort of the weight of that debt. And those are, I think, two very different experiences, but people can experience both in the same lifetime, right? I think when it comes to the book, it's a little bit of a mix and match of what you said. My goal with the book was to make personal finance information super relatable. And how I decided to do that was actually tell it through the story of other money makers, I, I call them in the book. So you'll have their budgets, sort of their stories, you'll know their jobs, their relationships, their pets' names, and then sort of takes them through what are the challenges they're trying to overcome and the lessons they learned and the strategies that they can use to do that. So you have. Claire in New York City, of Eric in Portland, you have Tanya in Chicago, and myself as one of the chapters. And in each chapter, you'll learn either about debt payoff, budgeting, finance automation, investing, and even real estate and sort of the home buying process as well. Some chapters are more focused on what are the strategies, sort of the tools, the calculations you can use to make those decisions. And then others, like some of the home buying chapters, are more of a checklist format where there's more of a clear sort of stepwise process you can take to that. So there's a bit of a mix and match there. But overall, I hope that it helps people sort of see a path regardless of where they're starting on their financial journey, how they can build wealth, even if they're starting with less. Because I know, for me personally, that was a mind shift that really set a fire to start investing more heavily and learning more about money in general. And it's so interesting, even having been in this industry for years now, how there's still always more to learn. I'm sure both of you can attest to that as well. And so everyone's starting from somewhere. And so I hope it provides the motivation, but also the strategies for people to take some of those steps. Yeah, I love that you included those stories in the book. And as I was going through, it's like, yeah, you can resonate with this person's story. This person's like me, I can kind of see myself in their shoes. And I mean, quite frankly, that's why Justin and I do the podcast. Like there's not one way to do it. There's not one way to get good with your personal finances or hit financial independence. There's so many different paths. And I love that you shared the stories in there. One thing I did really want to hit on from the book, and we can do all six or you can pick a couple, whichever one's your favorite, are these $6 million habits that you outline in the beginning of the book. And the reason I like them so much is like, it's kind of going back to the psychology of money. Like, I think we can all agree that 80, 90, 95% of People's success with money is because they're like thinking about it the right way. Like very, once you automate stuff, very little has to do with the actual tactics. So much of it is that psychology. And I think a lot of these million dollar habits are perfect embodiments of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to tease a few people who have to go out and get the book for the full rundown, but happy to give a sneak preview. Give us your favorites. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is hard to pick a few, but I'll do my best. I think what some of the things you hit on, Cody, sort of those mind shifts are huge. And I call them million dollar habits, as opposed to strategy or tactics, because I think they're the things that have really contributed to advancing, accelerating my wealth building journey, more than any amount of income I've ever made, or any amount of debt I've had to pay off at any point in time. So these are things that like, without these six habits, I think, regardless of if I had the tactics, but I didn't, believe that, you know, I could grow my net worth to my first 100 
K, for example, I never would have implemented them. And so there are traits like that, that I think can be huge from a mental perspective, which I've run quite a few workshops related to emotions and money. And it's amazing sort of the variety of emotions that people have when it comes to not just their experience with money to date, but where they think they're able to take themselves in the future. And so to answer your question, the first million dollar habit that I have in my book, which is one of my favorites, is start small but dream big. And I know a lot of your audience on the podcast, obviously, they're super hyped up about financial independence. So I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but it's really that mindset shift that if you never get started, if you don't learn to invest your first 10 or 100 or 1000 dollars, you're never going to get to the point where you can manage much larger sums of money and, and invest that to your benefit. And then I think the other thing, you know, you mentioned yourself and Justin might not have as much experience in dealing with debt. I think it's easy for a lot of people that have to sort of get down on themselves a little bit and feel like I've had these past money mistakes or, you know, these lessons I wish I learned earlier. And that can happen much later in your financial journey too, right? Especially if you make an investment or you slip up here or there. I think it can be easy to sort of dwell on those. And so one of the million dollar habits I have is starting with day one, you're really sort of forgetting, take the lessons that you've learned, but don't focus on those, don't get stuck on those and really just propel yourself to move forward and taking advantage of the investment opportunities that you might have ahead of you. And Kim, I know with the book, it's not targeted at just one kind of audience, but earlier you kind of made reference to, especially like for women or minorities and Anytime we have somebody on the show who's got an expertise that me and Cody just can't bring to the table, love to ask those kind of questions. So as you've been in this space, educating people, you know, researching for the book, what are some things that you've noticed that may be where the discussion is a little different for like, let's say women for in general? And what are some of the like things you would like to put out there as advice to women who are trying to get started on their personal finance journey? Great question. And so thank you for shouting that out. I think I was just doing some research myself for an article I'm working on. March is Women's History Month. And it's really interesting to see sort of the financial strides that women have made and how we've been able to save more and invest more, even in recent decades. And I think one of the more exciting stats that I've heard recently is a study that looked at over 5 million self-directed investment accounts across men and women and found that even though women are often investing less, we're often saving less because on average, we make less. There's still somehow a gender pay gap in America, right? So women on average are making less and that obviously impedes on their ability to invest. It's a huge problem when it comes to retirement because of how social security is structured as well. Social security is based on your top I think 35 earning years. So if you're making less along those years, you have less to rely on, even though you're inherently more relied on those benefits. So to flip that, an exciting stat I heard was that even though we might be investing less, our returns in that study were better than men. And I think a lot of that comes down to certain characteristics that women may have when it comes to investing and sort of our risk tolerance that might actually play in our favor there for those returns to be better. So I think there's definitely some challenges that women are up against when it comes to generating the income to invest, but we're no less capable than men in terms of our ability to pull that off. And so the book is not focused specifically towards women. I very intentionally made sure I had some male money makers in there as well. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that even though women and minorities may be up against certain challenges like that, that it's nothing that we're not capable of overcoming. So on the topic of making more money, I'm going to bring this kind of full circle to something you mentioned at the very beginning. 
think you said your dad was someone who said, be the first one there, be the last one to leave. It was like the person who works the most hours is going to be the most successful. But we all know that's not true. Like someone who's working 16 hour days making minimum wage is going to vastly underperform someone who has like, you know, a bunch of real estate and passive income from index funds and like all these other things. And that person might be working five hours a week. So it's not apples to apples, but I'm curious, like throughout your journey and in the book, Tim, like how have you kind of thought about income generation and kind of divorcing that trade as much as your time as you possibly can? And that's how you're going to make the most money. Yeah, I think it's definitely something I knew about it. I knew it was possible and I sort of believed in it before I was able to implement some of those money moves myself, right? So part of it's the financial education piece, learning about investing, learning about even different types of tax advantage accounts that were available to me that still are today, learning about the financial independence, retire early movement. All of that were things that I was learning about before I really felt like I had the spare income to do that. And for me, a lot of it was the proof is in the pudding, right? So like reading the stories of others, Cody, you and I have spoken about before. I think one of my first exposures to the FIRE movement was Grant Sabatier's book, Financial Freedom. And sort of reading about his story was super inspirational to me. But then starting to invest more strategically myself and flexing that muscle again, like starting small, dreaming big, little by little, increasing, you know, having a higher investment contribution target every year got me more comfortable with that. And also thinking about different forms of income that I could make, right? So like not just my nine to five, but generating, I have online courses through my company. I do one-on-one coaching that is a one-for-one trade and something I consider often, but it's also something that brings me a lot of value, right? I like having a few select amount of clients that I deal with and get to engage with on a really personal level. You know, I mentioned my condo earlier, having a rental property. Even when I was living there, I would do Airbnb. But now that I have a renter, that's a different form of income as well. So I think for me, it sort of started stacking slowly over time. And then now I look back and all of a sudden I have like six or seven streams of income. But I really just started with, you know, that first one after my nine to five. It was sort of a slow process for me. But I think it's so exciting once you see it start working for you that you're just like, Holy shit, you know, sorry, part of my language, but it's pretty exciting once you sort of see those gears starting to turn in action. Yeah, it's definitely exciting when you start to see those things start to compound, you start to see all the different streams of income, and there's so many different ways to get there. I think that's why it's cool in the book that you decided to pick out these different personas. I'm curious, like, in building that process, like, how did you go about deciding what kind of personas to cover or building those personas? Were these based off real people? Were these like just a way for you to make sure you covered every different kind of scenario? Yeah, where the moneymakers come from. Sure. It's definitely a mix and it was quite a fun process. This is my first book. So I've never written a book before. There's actually now I know there's like, I forget what it's called, but there's like a process that authors use for mapping this out. And I was just sort of doing it on the fly (laughs) at the time. There's a mix of real stories. My personal story and my budget in there are certainly real. And then there's some moneymakers that are completely fictional. I think most of them have at least sort of snippets of real people in them, but no one's completely based off one person. I think it was important to illustrate different situations, different genders, different age groups, different challenges that they were dealing with in order to really clearly outline the strategies that I wanted to get through in the book. But it was definitely a fun process and I think hopefully makes it a lot more 
enjoyable for the reader. I mean, there's so many money books out there. And I just thought that I didn't want another book, you know, that's just filled with jargon about compound interest and the avalanche method and things like that. I really wanted to make it about people. It's interesting how when I originally started discussions with my publisher, how my outline changed over time, because they were like, we love your story, but we really don't want it to be about you. And my immediate response was like, okay, I'll make it about all these other people. And hopefully that resonates with readers as well. And so kind of taking the stance of like someone who doesn't know how to move forward with their finances, I'm curious, this is just off the top. If in creating the book, you had some of those questions to be answered, like, I can't build wealth because like, I don't know if you just had a couple of those examples, like what are the biggest mental roadblocks, the biggest mental barriers you're seeing that the average person is having, thinking that they can't build wealth or they can't reach financial independence or whatever their financial goals may be. Yeah, it's not in the book, but I'll tell you, it's been a huge game changer for me is like, start learning and surrounding yourself with other people that talk about this stuff. Something I do talk in the book, and I think is especially true for women and especially true for minorities is they might be the first in their family to become a millionaire, right? They may be the first in their family to become debt free. And I think it can be tricky to look around the people that you grew up with and you maybe gained valuable lessons from and come to the conclusion that you really don't want to copy everything they did, that you want to be in a different place. And I don't think there's any shame in that, right? Like your family, your loved ones probably want that for you. And so I think if you don't have that information immediately around you, you can go find it. You can listen to a podcast. You can get an audiobook, you can read a book, you can watch YouTube videos. I mean, the information's out there now. So that would sort of be a major tip there. And then probably the clearest one in my story is like, don't let debt be a barrier to your financial future. A lot of people, especially everything going on with student loans right now, have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt. And they're wondering, you know, how am I ever going to pay that down? I mentioned two strategies earlier, but there are other things you can do. You can look into debt consolidation or refinancing. You can talk to a credit counselor with National Credit Foundation. There are free counseling things that you can do to help you with that debt as well. But don't let that be sort of a mental barrier to your ability to build wealth over time. If anything, you can flip it like you were talking about earlier, Justin, to where you're at a point where you're using these different financial products, credit products to your advantage to build your wealth even faster. I know one thing me and Cody really love is when we just get like a random email from somebody, especially if it's like in a different country where they've changed their lives because of something they heard on the podcast. And not to put you too much on the spot, but I'm curious if whether it be feedback from the book or I know you do some like kind of, you know, coaching clients, is there a story that you have where somebody's life has really changed because of the exposure you gave them to to personal finance that you'd like to share with the audience just as kind of a little point of motivation? Yeah, for sure. There's definitely been some. I mean, For some people, I think just having a plan from coaching is enough to really give them that confidence. So I've had clients who've paid down, you know, $18,000 worth of credit card debt, which is no chump change to a lot of people in a very short period of time. And then I've had others who I think one of my favorite stories is probably work one-on-one with clients in a three-month program. And through that, I come up with a 12-week action plan that they're going to follow, sort of improve their finances. We focus on three top goals. And they also get a custom plan. But as part of that, we have these monthly check-ins and sort of these educational sessions. And 
one of my most heartfelt moments was someone was telling me that they actually started sharing those resources with their sister. And I just thought, oh my gosh, that's so cool that I'm sure there's someone in the world that would have been upset that they're like sharing these things. And I was just like, this is awesome. Like the fact that it's starting with that one person and their family, right? That they're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and passing that information along. I thought that was amazing. So you shared via email, you were talking to, we're probably going to leave them unnamed, a friend of yours, or maybe it's a family member, who they were all excited about this deal. And I'll kind of full circle the lesson here, but they were talking about some real estate deal, like they bought a piece of land. And then you kind of looked at the deal and you're like, you probably just would have done better in index funds. And this reminds me actually a lot of like, people will, you know, see an influencer or they'll listen to a podcast and like, start buying real estate or they'll get into real estate. They'll be like, okay, I bought this property, rents 2000. The mortgage is $1,800, um, cash flow and $200 a month. And they just didn't run the numbers. Like they didn't realize there's all these other expenses that goes yeah. into buying real estate. And I'm just curious if you could talk about like how important running the numbers is and maybe share the details on that story that I mentioned a few seconds ago. It's funny. I was just writing an email to my email list the other day about this because I think the importance of running the numbers comes into play in so many situations. It's not just when you're talking about investing. I think Unfortunately, we live in a society that we love comparing ourselves to other people, right? We love like rules of thumb. We love benchmarks. We love social media and all of these things sort of feed into this human nature, if we will, in my opinion, of comparing where you are to others. When it comes to personal finance, it's personal. You really need to run the numbers for yourself, whether that comes to your budget, whether that comes to how much you're saving or investing. It can be crucial because a rule like, you know, invest 15% of your income, even in your audience, right? Like that's going to be a drastically different number depending on what you make. It may or may not be enough for you to retire depending on what you make. It depends on when you want to retire. There are all these nuances to personal finance that I think, you know, there are places for rules of thumb, but I think people generally prefer to take the easy way out a lot of times. And when it comes to some of these more strategic things that you're trying to do, it's important to sort of get to brass tacks and run those numbers. So the example I had shared with you, and it really sort of broke my heart a little bit because you never want to rain on someone's parade, you know, and I had a family member that was just super excited because they had held a piece of property for 20 years no house or anything on it, just land and sold it for 20 years and basically doubled their money. So like the example was they bought it for, I think around 20 grand, held it for 20 years, sold it for 40, 41, something like that. And they're like, yeah, that's pretty good. I doubled my money. And if you were to say on a social media snippet, I doubled my money, that sounds pretty good to most people, but you're completely ignoring the time frame in that scenario. I was on the phone and I was quickly running the numbers in my head. You know, I used the rule of 72, which is a rule I talk about in my book, which is you take 72, you divide it by the interest rate, and that can basically tell you in how many years you can double a lump sum investment. And so using that, I knew that you could usually double if you take 7%, which is a reasonable rate of return you expect in an index fund over a long period of time, that usually it would take about 10 years to double your investment. So 20 years... <laughs> To double your investment, I was like, this has got to be somewhere close to, to like 3 or 3.5%. And it's really not as good of a, as a return as the person thought it was. And you always hate to be sort of the bearer of bad news there. But, you know, they were sort of like, how do you do that math so quick? <laughs> like there, there are like math tricks you can do to help you there. But 
also help you make more strategic decisions when you're deciding if you ever come into a windfall or maybe you just capitalize on an investment and you're thinking of something new to invest that money in. There are tricks you can do to help you there that actually work in your favor instead of just thinking like, oh, I'm just going to do this percentage. I'm just going to invest this amount or I'm just, you know, it's similar to what you were saying, Cody, of like buying a property, but not running the numbers of, you know, what repairs do you need to make to that property? How long is that property going to be vacant? There are things that if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. And so you want to run the numbers to double check. Yeah, I know me and Cody can definitely second our hatred for rules of thumb and these generalities (laughs) and these things are just these blanket statements because especially for our audience, I feel like most of the time it does them like a disservice because it's so much like less than reality. I mean, for some people, it's more, maybe it it is even harder for them to reach than what people are saying. But for most of our audience, it's like you can do more than 15%. We definitely have a hatred for the rules of thumb. And I think if you talk to anyone who works with me, hopefully they feel positive about it. But almost any conversation we have, I end up opening up a Google sheet and start running some numbers. Right. But that's just how I am. And I think it's why I gravitated towards, you know, more of like an engineering world versus like English major, because I love the fact that like the numbers tell the truth. And you can argue about inputs and you can argue about like assumptions and you can argue about all that you want. But at the end of the day, once you have a set of numbers, like they spit out an output and that is the output and there is no like arguing about it. So giving people those tools where they can arm themselves with that, make wise decisions, understand when they make a decision, what's that third order impact based on how the math runs out. Like I think all that's huge. And it sounds like a ton of that is in the book. And so I really appreciate like how much work I'm sure that it took to put all that in there. And that was a long winded way of kind of like saying all the things that like make me excited about like this episode in the book. But obviously me and Cody, we can't ask you every question we'd want to. We can't cover every single thing. So for those who are listening and are like, yeah, there's a lot of really tactical things here every day I could use in my own personal finance world, but I want to learn more. Like, where's the best place for them to kind of reach out, learn more about you, follow along? Like, where's the best places people can do that? Absolutely. So beworthfinance.com, like Be Worth the Investment is my website. You can find all my courses, my book and upcoming events there. The book is available pretty much everywhere now. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, or even your local bookstore through bookshop.org. You simply put in your zip code and they'll find a local bookstore. You can order it through. And I think the one last thing I'll say is even for those of you that are listening, that you're thinking you're already beyond maybe some of the lessons that are in the book, if you want more people in your circle, Feel free to recommend it for a family member or friend that may be a little bit earlier on on their financial journey, because I think that can be a great way for them to learn some of the strategies they can use to sort of level up. Awesome. Well, I can definitely tell you put a lot of effort into the book because it's heavy. It's like 300 something pages. <laughs> got to I'm like, dang, this is like a yeah. legit book. <laughs> it's a pretty book, though. I have it here. You can see it. It's not too bad. <laughs> it's a pretty book. But just want to echo what Justin said and really think of your time. It's kind of cool to have this full circle moment from 2019 when we first met to now you've got your your own business, you've changed jobs, you're a published author, you're just killing it, Kim. So thank you for spending some time with us today and sharing your wisdom with our audience. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts share this with a friend. And also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. 
Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.